All right, we're going to go ahead and get started here. This is lesson 11 of our marriage class, and uh, thank you for coming out tonight. We are covering chapters 15 and 16 tonight of Paul Tripp's marriage book uh, with a few extra tidbits here and there. Uh, and so those chapters cover commitment six. Uh, Look like everybody got a handout, so we should be all set there. Um, commitment six is that we will work to protect our marriage. Uh, and so these two chapters sort of talk about that. Chapter 15 is called Eyes Wide Open, and that signifies that one of the things we do to protect our marriage is watch. And so you can just imagine holding your eyes open like this until your contacts dry out. Uh, but uh, being watchful, and we'll talk more about that. And then chapter 16 uh, think specifically about praying. It's uh, called On Your Knees. And so watching and praying are two important ways we can seek to protect our marriages. Uh, so we'll begin in chapter 15. You can track along in your notes. He uh, opens the chapter just by describing how there's kind of a, shuttle, a subtle shift that can take place in marriage. No shuttles in marriage, but a subtle shift I'll probably do that one again at some point tonight, but uh, that can take place in, in marriage. He points out that one of the clues that it's happening is that between you and your spouse, there's more accusation than there is personal regret, right? So more finger pointing than there is taking ownership of, uh, of things that have been done, things that have happened. So he goes on to explain that when that happens, the identity of the enemy has sort of shifted from where it should be, our sin and Satan, to your spouse, right? And all of a sudden, I'm pointing to them as the problem in the relationship. And this happens a lot in marriages. We view our spouse as the enemy, as opposed to remembering we're actually teammates, right? Protecting, fighting against the enemy, Satan, and our sin, and with the Lord's help. Standing firm, you know, as Ephesians uh, 6 would put it. So uh, we often get confused as to the characters and the roles, right? There's God who reigns over all. Uh, we are the Lord's and with Him. And then the enemy is uh, Satan. So it's important to remember that in marriage. Uh, again, it's easy to sort of just act and speak and talk as if our spouse is the enemy. And, you know, if the shift has taken long, taken uh, if it's been going on that long, we might even say that out loud. They are the enemy, is maybe the way we're thinking or even talking in our marriage, uh, but it's not true. They're a gift from the Lord, and Satan is the enemy. He puts it this way on page 262. It's the difference between standing as one to fight together the things that threaten your marriage or standing separately and keeping a record of the things that the other does that make marriage difficult for you. So that's just a good thought question. Do we stand together working against the things that would threaten our marriage? Or am I just keeping track of this list of the ways that my spouse is making things difficult for me? And, uh, you know, yeah, you maybe recount your last conversations with people and the uh, is it full of complaints about my spouse or is it the ways we're working together to guard against uh, the temptations and battles, uh, spiritual battles that we face? So 
We want to think specifically about what it means to watch together, to be alert, to be awake, to have you know, eyes wide open. Uh, that could be your little memorable imagery tonight. Just walk around in your marriage like this for a while. And uh, uh, that can remind you to have eyes wide open, watching for those dangers in marriage, working together. He goes on to talk about uh, what he calls God's lifetime warranty for marriage. And uh, it basically means that God's not going to abandon you in your marriage. God's grace is always present. So no matter where you're at, no matter how much you've been viewing your spouse as the enemy, God's grace for you has not changed, right? It's still present. It's still there. It's still helpful. Uh, We kind of cooperate with God's grace when we trust his promises, when we believe that what he says is true. And that then motivates us to take action, right? So three ideas here, God's lifetime warranty for marriage, grace, faith, and work. Of course, it takes work, but that work flows out of first God's grace, which reminds us that his promises never change, his love never fails, his presence will never leave us. So all of those rich promises are true. On our part, we get, we got to believe those things, right? We can operate as if those things are not true and, and distrust the Lord and live in unbelief. But there's even one more step after that faith because we understand that true faith works, right? True faith lives in obedience, right? It's not just, uh, you know, mental assent to these things being true. But if I really believe that God is present and helping, if I'm really trusting that, then I'm going to take God at his word and do the work that it takes to function in marriage. Uh, So those three concepts are important as we think about this. He gives some helpful illustrations. Think back to Israel at the Red Sea, all right? Remember the context, right? There's this great victory. They've just left Egypt. However, there's the bad news. The Egyptians are pursuing them. And uh, they end up cornered, right? They're, They're up against the Red Sea, and to their backs are the Egyptians who are ready to attack them. What's important to remember is actually the Lord brought them to that place, It's not a mistake that they ended up there, right? The Lord took them there. That's a neat reminder that the struggle, the place you may be facing in your marriage, though to some degree or another, may be due to your mistakes, your spouse's mistakes, God's still sovereign and he's still in it and he hasn't abandoned you in that spot. So there Israel is pinned down between the Egyptians and the Red Sea. And God brought them to that place for a specific reason. He was ready to show them his power and his glory so that they would trust him. I mean, you can imagine, right, the waters parting and, you know, is this really happening? Like, are we serious here? This is the solution, you know? And so they begin walking on that dry land and having to trust the Lord that this is really gonna work. And indeed, the, the waves hold up while they pass through and, and then crash down upon the Egyptians. But it took faith to trust that God's word was real, that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. And then they actually had to take steps, didn't they? They literally had to walk to get across the Red Sea. So you see God's grace, God's presence, even leading them to the end of themselves, stuck between the sea and the Egyptians so they would trust him, helping them to have the faith they needed to trust in him and then the work of actually taking those steps across the sea. A neat picture, a neat reminder Uh, of God's presence in our marriages. 
He says this on page 265, God is never surprised at the obstacles you encounter as you live with your husband or your wife. He intended marital hardship to drive you to his grace. I love that. And as it does, to cause you to grow and mature together. He also ordained these changes in you and your marriage to be a process and not an event. He is with you and he gives you what you need, but you must get up and follow him across the sea into battle. So grace, faith, and work. So he talks about how the opposite of a helpful, you know, watching in your marriage is just coasting, sort of relaxing. He makes an interesting statement. It's that uh, the, the most dangerous thing for a good marriage is a good marriage. Because when things are going well, it's easy to just sort of coast and be like, yeah, we're good. We stop leaning on God's grace. We stop depending and trusting in his promises uh, and taking action and working. So, uh, oops, sorry, I forgot to give you those. So coasting, coasting uh, is often where things go wrong. What was our uh, sound we were going to make to clue me in that I hadn't given you some blanks? You're going to hoot like an owl, right? Yeah, thank you, Jim. That was it. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, I forgot to get those others. Y'all caught up? Okay. So things go wrong when we coast. Now, he explains a few ideas of what it looks like when we coast. And so maybe you can notice these things in your own relationship. First, he mentions visual lethargy. Visual lethargy. Uh, this is sort of a metaphor, and it means that we just get used to seeing certain things, and we miss, we miss that they're actually a problem because we've gotten used to seeing them. So he uses the illustration of a, a piece of art. Maybe you've purchased a piece of art, and when you first saw it, it just you know, stood out to you as beautiful. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. I put it on my living room wall. I love this piece of art. Well, the months go by, the years go by, and pretty soon it's just there on the wall and you've sort of forgotten about it. You don't notice it anymore. You don't pause to look at it or delight in it like you once did. And uh, what happens? Well, over time, you just get used to it. Same thing happens in our marriages. Certain things that shouldn't be happening we just kind of get used to them. We let them go, and they become commonplace. We don't notice them. So uh, in the church building this week, this one came up uh, some months ago. We moved our twos and threes class to the gymnasium, right? You're all aware of that. You're probably even thinking, yeah, that was a really long time ago, actually, we did that. Well, it just occurred to us that the sign that said twos and threes classroom was still hanging outside this classroom over here, right? How many of you noticed that that was still there? Some of you probably did. Yeah. So we just took it down this week because we just noticed. It was like, oh my goodness, that sign is still up. It's been you know, six months or more, maybe even a year, uh, since that change took place. And uh, we hadn't even noticed it. Why? Because these things, we become blind to these things. So visual lethargy. You've gotten used to things in your marriage that you should be watching for that have just become commonplace. He talks next about habit inconsistency. And here the idea is that the, those really important habits that maybe when you started marriage, you were like, all right, we are going to do this right. And so you had all these really great habits uh, to protect your marriage. And through the years, those things kind of fall by the wayside. Maybe you can remember being in school, right? You remember the first week of school? 
clean slate. You had an A-plus in all your classes because there hadn't been any homework yet. Uh, your pencils were all sharp. Your desk was organized. You remember those days, right? Week two has all gone down the drain somehow. You know, it's just like all of your great goals of being organized and doing really well uh, are, are lost because those things fade. <laughs> Same can happen in marriage, right? You start with these goals, these habits, these things that you know are really good to do. But over time, they kind of fall by the wayside. Um, so what habits, really good disciplines, have fallen by the wayside um, that would be good to implement again in order to help you to be watchful, uh, protecting your marriage against harm? Laziness. Laziness. This is a, man, this is a really easy one in marriage, right? We know we need to have the conversation, but we don't feel like it right now. It's been a long day. I just want to read. I just want to go to bed. So I'll, I'll, we'll talk about it tomorrow, and then it doesn't happen tomorrow. And we put our desires over God's desires. That's what laziness is, right? We do what we want instead of what God wants. And uh, that happens in marriage all the time. Um, we don't put in the effort to do what needs to be done to protect the marriage um, we, just, uh, we just take the easy route instead of the one that pleases the Lord. Impatience. Impatience. So God's process of change in our lives is incredibly patient. This blows me away, how patient the Lord is with us. You ever thought about that? We know that God's goal for us is perfection, right? We know that's, we'll land at that in eternity and glory, and we know that his goal for us has become more and more like Jesus. So that means, like, God looking at me right now, there's this massive list of things that, that are wrong, that God really wants to change. It's enormous. It's a huge list. I don't even know the whole list, right? God knows the whole list. He doesn't dump that on me all at once. He's so kind. He's patient. Like, he knows all those things need to change. But little by little, he's prodding and working, and as... The Word is used by the Spirit in my life. You know, maybe it's patience here. Maybe it's uh, humility here. Whatever. God is slowly, patiently chopping away. Well, sometimes in marriage, we know that God's doing that with us, but we're not ready to be patient with God doing that in our spouse's life. It's like, okay, Lord, work a little faster here. I really want her to grow in this area. I've been working on her. If you could just get on board, move a little quicker here. We could solve this, but it takes a lot of patience because God is patient with us, and so we show that same patience. This is interesting, this quote from page 273. When I resist the processes that make a marriage beautiful and demand things in an instant, I'm not resisting marriage or resisting my spouse. No, I am resisting God, right? So, Showing the same patience he shows us to our spouse. Next one he mentions is responding in discouragement. So again, these are all evidences of coasting in a marriage. Responding in discouragement. This is where we choose not to trust the Lord. We choose not to hope in his promises anymore. And instead, we just kind of give in to our, our emotions. We give in to our own discouragement over a situation. Uh, I really like how he describes it on page 274. 
There is a point in the lives of many couples when they quit responding in faith, hope, and love, and they begin to respond to one another in discouragement and fear. Their practical everyday responses are formed more and more by what they are afraid of than by what they hope for. Meaning I'm not looking at my marriage as a picture of what God can do as His promises unfold in our relationship. No, I'm looking at it in terms of what I'm afraid of happening. I'm looking at the end of the most negative path possible. I'm interpreting uh, it in the worst way possible. A couple in that condition are more driven by discouragement at what is than they are by faith at what could be. They respond more out of hurt than love. He references Psalm 37, verse 8, which I wanted to read for you. Um, And so you can open and follow along as I read if you'd like. Psalm 37, verse 8. In fact, 1 through 8 is a really great section about trusting the Lord and uh, not responding in discouragement, but responding with faith and hope in the midst of trials. Um, So I'll go ahead and read all those verses, actually, because they're great. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. It's that last phrase that Paul Tripp quotes in the book as a reminder of not to get discouraged or anxious in that relationship. Do not fret. It only causes harm. And it's probably true. You can look back to the choices you've made in times when you were discouraged or times when you were worried. And uh, we're really not leaning on the wisdom of God or the promises of God when we make decisions in discouragement and in anxiety, are we? They're not great times to make choices that are pleasing to the Lord and are following His direction. Do not fret, it only causes harm. Finally, he references dining with the enemy. Now, you look at a phrase like that and you're like, I wouldn't do that, right? Uh, why would I sit down to, to a meal with, with Satan or whatever? Or, or maybe you're interpreting your spouse as the enemy and filling in the blanks there. In the book, he is talking about Satan. He is talking about Satan. Uh, but there are two references that he points out. The first is Ephesians 4.26, which we've looked at before in this class, which says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. So if I'm going to allow anger to continue in my marriage relationship, I'm giving place, basically I'm giving a seat at the table to Satan. How are we doing on the blanks? Hey, we're doing all right. I didn't hear any hoots, so that's good. So if I'm not willing to make things right with my spouse, I'm giving this open door, a seat at the table to Satan uh, to grow bitterness in my heart, to... 
drive a wedge between me and my spouse because I won't deal with that anger. Another uh, helpful reference is 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That one highlights the theme of this chapter, right? Being watchful, eyes wide open. Be sober, be vigilant. Why? Because Satan's just looking for that opportunity to draw us into temptation, to drive that wedge between you and your spouse. He's the enemy, not your spouse. So when we remember that, we remain alert, we remain watchful, and work together to protect the marriage. Your spouse is your teammate with the Lord to stand against the wiles of the devil. He's the enemy, not your spouse. That leads us to chapter 16. Chapter 16, on your knees. So he opens the chapter by reminding us that marriage is indeed meant to reveal our need for help. Marriage is meant to reveal our need for help. It's meant to be a tool in God's hands to expose your heart and to drive you to the end of yourself. You ever felt that way in marriage, the end of yourself? I I don't know what went wrong. I'm not sure what the problem is. I don't know what to do about it. That's where the Lord often wants us to be. So we remember, oh, I'm to go to Him when I need help. I'm to humble myself and get on my knees and get into His Word and seek His help and direction. And so prayer is a key for us in marriage. You know, a lot of times in the Christian life, we really want to know the will of God, right? Even in marriage, as you maybe look at the future, you look at various decisions, you can probably remember times that you've sought the will of God, right? Uh, Which house do we buy? Which job do we accept? What do we do for school for our kids? You know, what's God's will? And that's a really great thing to want and to desire. However, he points out that sometimes in searching God's will in those details, we ignore the things that we know are God's will. So, for instance, he quotes 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice, pray, give thanks. There's God's will for you, right? So, there's, there's the answer to our question. Which house should I buy? Well, rejoice, pray, give thanks. And little by little, the Lord will make things clear in those less important matters. So think about that in marriage. How often have I been so concerned with the will of God that I devoted myself to prayer with my spouse because I knew that was the will of God? I fall far short. Um, sure, we pray together at meals and uh, go on a walk every now and then and pray, but man, prayer is always convicting, isn't it? Because you can spend so much more time doing it. And uh, well, verse 17 is pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing. So there's really no limit to the amount of time we could spend talking to the Lord. Uh, and that's his will for us. That's his desire for us. Prayer is the right place to turn when God reveals to us that we need help. So he points out a couple of aspects uh, that prayer transforms us. 
Uh, Prayer transforms us. Number one, it reminds us of the context of marriage, that God is in this, especially if you're both believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even if only you are, God is in you. He's with you. And He's for you. And so He's... You're just surrounded by Him in your marriage. No matter where your spouse is at, He is the context. And prayer reminds us of that. We bow before Him and talk to Him. No matter where we are, He's there. He's there. Number two, prayer reminds us of the reality of our marriage. We sin and God gives grace. The whole posture of prayer, bowing before the Lord. And and again, we don't always have to get on our knees. We don't always have to have a certain posture when we pray. It's it's a heart posture before the Lord, isn't it? We bow before Him. Uh, We are the sinners. He's the one who gives grace. He's the one we need. And that's a reality in marriage. So if you want to... uh, Open your Bibles to, uh, we're actually going to look at the Lord's Prayer, and it's all written there in your notes, so I suppose you don't have to uh, open your Bibles, but it's available to you in Luke chapter 11 or Matthew chapter 6, and uh, I will be open to Matthew chapter 6, and I think that's what he quotes from in the book, so that may be the one you want to track along with. Uh, Verses 9 and following uh, is the Lord's Prayer there. But he he mentions how uh, prayer can be a great source of protection in marriage. On our knees before the Lord, seeking His help. And so we're just going to walk through quickly here the Lord's Prayer, phrase by phrase, and think through how it can be an encouragement and a help to us in guarding our marriages, protecting our marriages. First phrase, our Father in heaven reminds us that we are never alone. Our Father is with us at all times, not only in heaven, but now, indwelt by His Spirit, He is present always. We're never alone. And secondly, He's our Father, which reminds us of His grace and His care and His love, right? He made Himself our Father, right? He's only our Father because of His grace and His kindness, Think of the words of John in 1 John 3, right? What kind of love is this that we get to be called children of God? You know, Behold what manner is maybe the, the phraseology you remember. What kind of love is this that God would call us His children? That's grace. That's grace. And so as we pray, we remember that God is present and He's my Father. He loves me. He cares about what's going on in my marriage. Number two. The next phrase, hallowed be your name, that means uh, like set apart or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This reminds us that God's purpose for our marriages is bigger than my marriage itself. It's not only about my joy and happiness. Now God is in it for my joy, right? He's working for my joy. But God's purposes are far bigger than that. God is working for His glory, and He's working through our marriages to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So His purpose is bigger than the marriage. Prayer reminds us of a king greater than us and a kingdom better than my own. We've talked a lot about that concept of kingdom. And in selfishness, we often default to building our own kingdom instead of 
uh, working for God's glory. When we bow before the Lord and we say to him, your kingdom come, holy be your name. We're the sinners. He's the holy one. We're the servants. He's the king. And so it puts us in that place of submission where we're working together in this marriage to build his kingdom rather than our own. What a great phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just open-handed submission to the Father, whatever you have, Father. Number three, give us this day our daily bread. Here, prayer reminds us that we are needy. I mean, this is a simple prayer for bread, right? Maybe it takes our minds back to the Israelites uh, in the wilderness, depending on the Lord for manna. And that uh, it had to be replaced on a daily basis. You ever pause to reflect on why God designed it that way? He, he was teaching the Israelites to depend on him daily, right? To trust him. And every morning as they went back out, God's provision would be there again. God's faithfulness would come through and meet their needs. Uh, prayer is a reminder that we depend on the Lord. We're needy. We need him on a daily basis, and it's not silly to pray even for something as simple as our next meal. Lord, meet our needs. Provide all that we have is yours, and uh, we need your help. Prayer, I like the way he puts this, prayer yanks you out of your delusions of self-sufficiency and reminds you of how deeply needy you really are. We all have delusions of self-sufficiency. We all have delusions of self-sufficiency. I am especially delusional in the area of self-sufficiency. Uh, Pastor Ryan and I were working on a project in the kitchen and involved uh, installing a uh, cabinet. And uh, so he happened to run an errand, to, I think, to go to Menards to get more parts. And so uh, I just wanted to keep moving with the project. And so in my delusional self-sufficiency, I thought, well, I can install a cabinet by myself. Uh, I don't need Pastor Ryan. Have you ever installed cabinets before? Okay, so that's a bit delusional. Uh, <laughs> so I devised this system of stacking items to just the right height to where the cabinet needed to set, and I could balance the cabinet on top of this stack of items so it would be in place while I screwed the cabinet to the wall. Well, my stack of items was just about a half an inch too tall. And so I had the cabinet sitting on there. So I got up and ready to, to screw the cabinet into the wall. And now I'm leaning on the cabinet, pushing the cabinet down on my stack of things to get it to the right height so I can screw it into the wall. So all of that goes successfully. I get all my screws in, the cabinet's on the wall. So I come back down uh, to remove the stack of items underneath the cabinet. And what I didn't plan for was the fact that my pressure, as well as the weight of the cabinet, down on that stack of items had semi-permanently wedged those items beneath the cabinet between the counter space and the cabinet. The very top item was a, uh, a bottle of, it's just the most random thing in the world, a bottle of hand sanitizer that was just the right height on its side to go in that spot. And, and sure enough, it gave way when pressing down on the cabinet. It was perfect. So then my next brilliant thought was, well, I know how to get all this unwedged. I open the bottle of hand sanitizer. <laughs> So I unscrew the, <laughs> I begin unscrewing the cap of hand sanitizer and hand sanitizer starts going everywhere. <laughs> 
But it worked, right? <laughs> the bottle emptied, and I could get everything out from under the cabinet. So, so Ryan gets back from Menards and walks into the kitchen, and there are you know, buckets and hand fragrant hand sanitizer all over the kitchen. He's like, uh, what happened here? It's like, well, I got the cabinet up. He's like, why'd you do that? Anyway. We can be a little delusional in our self-sufficiency sometimes in life and need to be reminded of our need for help. So there's a great little story for you about our delusional self-sufficiency or my delusional self-sufficiency. Prayer reminds us of our dependency upon God, right? Um, This struck me when thinking about this lesson. I've never thought this before, but it's something I want to reflect on more You know, we often worry that maybe we're being proud. I think maybe sometimes a good clue to know whether pride has become, has a stronghold in our lives is is how much we're actually praying. Is there a better expression of humility than prayer? To bow before the Lord and say, I need help. To cry out to Him for, for grace and for mercy and help. And if I'm not praying regularly, I mean, if I just don't sense a need to get on my knees before the Lord, then it seems to me, at least the way my heart functions, that probably there's a lot of pride going on there, self-sufficiency that thinks, eh, actually, I got this, right? <laughs> yeah, I got it stacked on some hand sanitizer. It'll be fine. No, it's delusional. We need the Lord. We need the Lord. Number four, as the prayer goes on, he says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Prayer reminds us of God's daily call to give the same grace to your spouse. Give the same grace to your spouse as God has given to you. This is one of the key themes of our, uh, our material. That the gospel reminds me to treat my spouse the way God has treated me, right? He's given me love, and so I give love. He has forgiven me, and so I forgive. He's patient with me, and so I show patience. So uh, this phrase in the prayer, he reminds us of this, Lord, forgive us our debts so that we can seek to forgive others as well. Prayer calls us to celebrate vertical forgiveness and requires that we offer horizontal forgiveness as well. Number five. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Prayer reminds us that our biggest marital struggles exist inside of us and not outside of us. Again, this goes back to what we talked about in the last chapter, where I begin to think that my spouse is the enemy, that it's her problems, her struggles that are causing the rub in our marriage. But Jesus is clear in his teaching. Sin comes from the heart. It comes from inside of me. And so Satan is the enemy, and of course my sin is when I side with Satan. It's when I oppose God. And so that's the enemy, the sin in my heart and Satan, not my spouse. And so prayer reminds us that that is my leaning, to give in to temptation, to be tempted by evil. And so we ask the Lord for help. Prayer calls us to quit blaming our husband or wife for our words and actions. This quote on page 296 was helpful. When the husband is deeply persuaded that the hope of the marriage is to get the wife fixed, 
and the wife is deeply persuaded that the future of the marriage is to get the husband fixed, you can be sure that their marriage will not change, right? Because the spouse is constantly pointing to the other one, right? Um, they may even come together for help, but you begin to sense pretty quickly that they've sort of brought their spouse to you for help, right? I really need you to work on her. I've been trying, but if you could fix her, things would be a lot better. The solution only comes when we look into our own hearts and say, I'm the one who needs to change. Lord, humble me and grow me. Humble me and grow me. Number six, the prayer concludes, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And so it sort of ends the way it begins, looking up to our heavenly father and his kingdom. It reminds us that the key to marriage is an allegiance to God's kingdom and not my own. An allegiance to God's kingdom and not my own. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I'm trying to build. It's not about my desires. It's just that wholehearted submission to God and what he wants. Prayer calls us away from the kingdom of self, which is so destructive to everything. Uh, And it welcomes us to the kingdom of God where God rules in love. And so he closes by encouraging us to continue to watch and pray. Eyes wide open, right? Use toothpicks if you need to, to hold those eyelids open. On our knees before the Lord, watching and praying, working together as husband and wife to guard against those dangers uh, that are all around us. You have there, uh, I can't remember if it's at the bottom or the back of page four, uh, some discussion questions. And so there's only three or four minutes left, um, but I encourage you to start working through those with a few people nearby. Uh, And if you can't get very far, uh, finish discussing with your spouse at a future date. Uh, Just some helpful things uh, to think through in your own marriage. Let me close in prayer and then you can work through some of those discussion questions. Father, we thank you for our time together and uh, we bow before you even now. As our Holy Father, we thank you uh, for your love for us. Father, we want your will to be done in our lives. We submit to you. And uh, we are so needy, we ask for your help in each of our marriages uh, to confess our sins, to offer forgiveness, and uh, to resist temptation. Work for your glory in our marriages, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You are dismissed. and Enjoy some discussion. You're welcome to leave whenever. I think the kids are done at 8.15. So, thank you.